0: If you have your Bible this morning. By the way, I wasn't abstaining from communion because Tammy and I had an argument. I didn't know where my supplies were here. So um, since we have a second service, I'll be able to take it. So you can stop praying for, but pray for me. Don't stop praying for me. Amos chapter nine. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers have plenty of extra Bibles. Could I encourage all of you? I know many of you do, but could I encourage all of you to pray for our church? The Holy Spirit's at work in our midst. And and God does his work through the the prayers of his people. So please, be praying. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the gospel to spread. Pray for so many people are struggling in marriages and parenting and jobs and health and addictions and struggles. Pray that the Holy Spirit will just be be abundant and and powerful in in our midst. And that we will see remarkable things happening for the glory of God. I believe that we're just beginning to, to taste of, of a great outpouring of God's grace. We certainly don't deserve it, and he can withhold his blessing as he chooses. But pray for me and all of our leaders. We really, really appreciate it, and thank you very much for your prayers. Well, in Amos chapter 9, we're going to finish the book today. Now, I don't know if any of you, you, you folks are probably way more godly than my family we still have a television and we watch it a little bit i'm not just saying a little bit every once in a while we have what some people might call um tv wars like a difference of opinion of what we're going to watch now again i know that you have perfect unity in your home but if there's one thing that grates my wife's nerves like the sound of fingernails on a on a blackboard it's if she hears in the background bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? <laughs> now, frankly, I like that show. And she's like, why do you want to watch some of the most, you know, bad people in society? And, and I said, I think for me, I just like seeing bad guys get caught. I like that. I don't, you know, maybe there's a sense within us of being part of made in God's image, that a sense of justice. You know, we all kind of like vigilante stuff when the bad guy gets his turn. So, But one of the things that's kind of a frequent theme on cops is people running from the police. We have quite a few law enforcement officers that attend our church, and several of them are like deputy sheriffs. And one of the things they do is they go and serve warrants to people that didn't show up for court. Now, there might be some of you here that have have missed a court date, but I, as I thought about this, I thought there could probably only be three reasons why someone would not show up for court. Okay, one would be you didn't know about it. So somehow that summons that was sent to you never came across your desk and you honestly didn't know about it. Now, frankly, if they show up for you because you miss court, doesn't matter. Ignorantium ad non excusat, remember? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You're still in trouble. But secondly, you knew about it, and you forgot about it. Okay, that's a possibility. Oh, I knew, but I, I thought it was next week, or I forgot. And then third, you didn't want to. You, you, for whatever reason, you were afraid. And this is what many people, they just, they're afraid. They're like, if I go, I know he's going to put me in jail, so I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm just going to hear no evil. See no evil. And then they end up having far more consequences. Well, the reason I share that is because as we've been going through the book of Amos... God has been consistently pronouncing that his judgment is coming upon his people real soon. So Amos is preaching in 750 BC, and he's telling them, my judgment is inescapable. We saw last week when Pastor Bob was showing us, God says, the end has come. Chapter 8, verse 2, the end has come. You've been served. It's It's your date, and I'm bringing my judgment. But for whatever reason, it wasn't sinking in they weren't afraid, they weren't repenting, they didn't seem to be getting it. And so God, through Amos, is giving these visions and these pronouncements. As we close chapter 9, there's four things we're going to see at the end of the book of Amos about God's judgment. And I'll mention them. I encourage you to take a few notes. It just helps you to sort of remember some of the key points. And I'm going to give some other scriptures to think about. But the first thing we're going to see is an announcement of an inescapable judgment, and that's really important, inescapable, like don't think you're going to be accepted, you're exceptional, okay, secondly, a description of the God who brings the judgment, I've heard people say this, do you know which judge I'm going to to see, you know, some of you, you know the game, you've been, you've gotten enough tickets, you're like, I hope I get Judge Kelly, I hope I get, and you call your lawyer, hey, which judge am I going to see, so God gives a description Okay, you just need to know who the, this judge is that you're going to stand before. And then third, and thankfully, there's a proclamation of God's grace within the judgment. In the midst of this terrifying announcement of judgment, God, God makes this declaration of his sovereign grace. And then finally, he, the book, and this is kind of like Amos, finally, there's some good news in the book. The book ends with a, a, a description of a bright future for those who escape judgment. And you're like, but wait, you just said no one escapes judgment. Bright future for those who escape judgment. How's that gonna work? Well, we'll we'll see as we look at this passage. So let's pray and, and we'll read it. Father God, thank you for your word, and now may the Holy Spirit take your word and do what you promised you would do, that you would reprove, rebuke, exhort, convert, feed your sheep, and exalt your name, and we pray that the word of God will, will spread and, and take root in our hearts and bear much fruit. We, we earnestly believe that this is a work of the Holy Spirit, and we pray that it will be accomplished in all of us today. We need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at the first four verses where God gives a, a, an announcement of inescapable judgment. Now, just a, a brief background setting. Remember that we said northern Israel had set up a burger king religion they decided to have it their way so god had said you're going to build a temple in jerusalem and you're going to let me pick the priest from the tribe of levi and you're going to worship me exactly this way but when northern israel split off they decided they were going to have a similar but separate form of religion so they built this temple in, in the town of Bethel. They had their own priests, their own sacrifices, and many people would come and have these feasts. It reminds me very much of Christianity in America. I mean, there are so many churches right now that call themselves a Christian church, right? And yet, when, when you think about the things that they're doing, you're like, please, take the name Christian off of the church, please. And so, this, this vision that Amos has is, I think what God's doing here is picturing all of these people who call themselves people of God, eating in one of these pagan temples and they're having a worship feast. And I almost almost think Amos pictures Samson here. Do you remember Samson's last great feat when when he was was chained to the pillars of that temple and and, and these godless worshipers of Baal were in there just blaspheming God and, and Amos or um, Samson receives strength from God to push the pillars and the whole temple falls down and destroys them. I think that's similar to what we're going to see here. So let's look at verses 1 through 4. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Now you might say, what altar? Well, this isn't his altar, and we'll see that this is a false altar. And he said, smite the capital so that the thresholds will shake. Now, again, when, when you're reading the Bible, sometimes it's good to look at more than one translation, because when I first read that, smite the capitals, I'm thinking, okay, like the capital of New Jersey is Trenton, so he must be saying, smite the, um, the important cities. But this particular word, some Bibles say, smite the capstones. These were the top stones on top of each pillar. So, so now we're talking about architecture here. So he says, Smite the capital, smite the top stones so that the thresholds will shake. Well, in Hebrew, the thresholds were the, the stones that were the foundations of each pillar. Most of us don't have pillars in front of our house. A few of you probably do, and that's nice. And when they put those pillars there, they didn't just go, hey, let's stick it in the mud. They have foundations. So, so God says from top to bottom, I want you to, to knock the, the top capstones off of the pillars, th- shake the thresholds, and break them on the heads of them all. So you're like, well, that's kind of morbid. Like just, just, I'm standing beside your godless altar and I'm just going to bring the whole place down. It would be like God saying, Tom, tell him I'm going to drop the roof on him right now. Right? And then he says, and then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. Now here, here's the important thing. This is why I said, an announcement of inescapable judgment. Then God says, they will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. In other words, there's not going to be a couple guys on, on the outskirts who are going to go, whoo, run for your lives. Whew. We got away from that. Or, or maybe they got um, a little intel that there was going to be a judgment, and so they're like, I'm not going to church today. I'm fleeing to the mountains. God's like, don't think for a moment that a single one of you will escape my judgment. So I think what he's going to do is he's going to go, I know some of you are clever and you're thinking, well, I'm an exception. I know how I can avoid God's judgment. I'll hide from him. No, we learned this when we were little. When your father gets home, you're going to get it. So what'd you do? You hid in the closet, right? You know, you had this idea that if out of sight, daddy won't find me, he won't discipline me. So God he sort of unfolds this idea of, don't think you can hide from him. He goes, though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them down. Now, Sheol in the Old Testament, this was a Hebrew place, Hebrew word for the place where dead people went. Okay? Depends on which passage you're reading. Sometimes Sheol sounds like a really bad and scary place. Sometimes it sounds like a good place, a place where you're gathered with other believers as you wait the resurrection. But the idea is, don't think you can hide in the grave because from there my hand shall take them. And then he says, though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. In other words, from top to bottom, don't think you can hide underground or go down below the earth. Don't think you can go up behind the clouds. Same with the threshold. From top to bottom, nobody's going to escape. But then there must be someone even more clever. He says, well, I'll do is I'll get my scuba suit on. I'll go out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and I'll dive down to the very bottom and I'll, and I'll submerge myself under a piece of coral and God will never find me. And God says, Though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. Now, in the Old Testament, God frequently spoke of this serpent and there's this mystery to, to this great sea monster. But frankly, you know what? Whenever nowadays we see these crazy cameras that can go way down there, there's some pretty scary creatures down there. Like, I don't know that I would want to be left alone down there. And then, then some of these people, if, if they didn't die when the Assyrians came and attacked them and burned the walls and slaughtered them, even if some of them got to be taken to Assyria, God says, and though you go into captivity f- before your enemies, from there I will command the sword it will slay them. Reminds me of the story of Samuel and Saul and Agag. Remember, God told Samuel, go and slay all the Amalekites and, or Saul. And, and Saul spared King Agag. And so by the time, a few days later, when, when Samuel shows up, the Bible says, Agag thought he had escaped the judgment because, hey, look, I'm still alive. They killed all the other people. They didn't kill me. And Samuel says, hack them to pieces because of his wickedness. So let, let's keep reading. The inescapable of God's judgment, inescapableness of God's judgment. God says, although they go into captivity, from there I'll command the sword and slay them, and I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. And you're going, well, that doesn't doesn't sound very, but I mean, think about this. If you were living then, and Amos was saying that to you, I'd be scared, wouldn't you? I'd be like, if this guy's telling the truth, I'm in trouble. And sometimes it's so heartbreaking to stand and preach the Word of God and, and have people sit out there, oh, you know, this doesn't pertain to me. What are you talking about It doesn't pertain to you? How would you think you're an exception? Please. But, you know, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever seen some judges? They're like these wizened little old men, because, you know, your judges for life, they're like 119, you know, and, they're like, and you're like, oh, I'm not afraid of him. He's like a little, he, you can hardly hear him talk, right? I've often, not often, but I thought of this as I was studying this passage. I said, we should have a, a qualification. To be a judge, you have to be at least 6'8". You have to be jacked with arms as big as, as um, you know, telephone poles. And you have to have a menacing look about you. So, so that when the person comes before the judge, he goes, so you're back, right? You'd be like, right? So, I think this is what God's doing. He goes, let me remind you. So, what we're going to look at here in verses 5 and 6 is a description of the God who brings judgment. Now, what's really interesting in verse 5 and 6, this is the second time that Amos uses this language. And so, the commentaries are suggesting that this was actually a song. So, those of you that are interested in in worship, right, This this is... probably a song that the Israelites used to sing about God, okay? And it's, you, you, you know, we sing about God. What do we sing about? Sometimes we sing about his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Sometimes we sing about his power. I sing the mighty power of God. So this was one of their songs, but, but they're singing about how strong their God is, and, and Amos is going, yeah, but you got to think about this. You know, they're, they're, they're singing from a posture of going, our strong God's going to get you bad guys, and, and, and Amos kind of flips this song around. He goes, yeah, you know what? That strong God that you sing about, he's coming for you, right? So, so like, we, we get up and we sing, our God is an awesome God. He wasn't messing around. He wasn't putting on the ritz when he did creation. We're like, that's right. God's. You go, that's the same God that I'm going to stand before. So let's look at this song that the Holy Spirit leads Amos to, to, to write. And the Lord God of hosts. That's the beginning of the song. And then down in verse 6, look at the last line. The Lord is his name. We haven't spent much time on this, but one of the things that Amos emphasizes is different names of God. Now remember that the most famous and perhaps the most profound name of God in the Old Testament was Yahweh, I am. Uh, Some people use the word Jehovah, but this was the... This was the sacred name that this, because back then they had millions of gods. You know, we have Baal and we have this god and we have that god. And and the Lord goes, I am Yahweh. There is no other. So at the beginning of this song, it says, and Yahweh Jehovah Sebaoth, the Lord of hosts. And then he says, Yahweh is his name. Now, what does that mean? Hosts were armies, Right? So when he says the Lord of hosts, you're like, is that like hostess, like Twinkies or a host at a restaurant? No, a host is a, is a large multitude. Like maybe you say a heavenly host. Like for all these years, you, you thought there would be like someone, um, the heavenly host would say, Hi, I'm the heavenly host. Uh, do you have reservations here too? No, a heavenly host is like millions and myriads of beings. And the Bible describes angels as thousands upon thousands, myriads of angels that no man can number. Right, And so when God says, I'm the God of the armies, I'm the God of, of, of an unspeakable number of angels, these little angels aren't naked, budded babies going, I love Jesus, right? Nowhere in the Bible we see an angel as a naked, budded baby. Angels are stronger than humans. The Bible says they're greater in power. They're, these terrestrial beings are awesome. And if you went in the ring with one of them, you would lose every time. And at times God appeals to these angels as his army, his helpers to, to show us his power. Even Jesus did this. Remember when Peter pulls out his sword, he goes, Come on, Jesus, I got your back. And Peter, Jesus says, put that away. He's don't you think I could call 12 legions of angels right now? Thousands of angels. So so who's the God that 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 they have to face? He's Jehovah. Sabaoth, the God of the heavenly host. And then look how God describes himself. Verse 5, the one who touches the land so that it melts. My son always had a fascination with candles. Some of your kids are like that. You know, when you light the candles, can I blow them out? Can I touch them? Can I wax? Something kind of cool about putting something hot on there and watching it melt. But that's kind of scary to think that God just touches planet Earth and it melts like a little wax ball. And then he says this, and all who dwell in it mourn, and it rises up like the Nile, and it subsides like the Nile of Egypt. See, everybody back then knew about the Nile and knew that every year in flood season, the Nile would just overflow its banks and everything would be washed up, and then it would settle back down. And you're going, why would God describe? Touching the land so everybody's in mourning and it's rising up like the Nile and then it's coming back down. We'll go back to chapter 8 for a moment. Because here's where Amos quoted this same song. Verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget their deeds. And because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Now think about that. In chapter 9 he goes... I'll touch the land and those who dwell mourn. But but the passage before he goes, the land will quake and and, and those who dwell in it mourn. But then keep reading. Then he says, In verse 8 of chapter 8, and it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. And all of a sudden you go, wait a minute. The land will quake. It'll, it'll rise up like like a seismic fault when you've seen in China or in you know the San Andreas fault you're going man look what happened in that earthquake and then you go wait a minute didn't Amos at the beginning of this book say in chapter 1 that I'm preaching and he gives us a reference in the days of king Uzziah 2 years before the earthquake and we're gone what earthquake so i think God actually had an earthquake somewhere during this time in Israel, right? And I don't know about you, but when I see earthquakes and I see devastation, I happen to think of God's judgment. Do you? The problem is, being a sinner, sometimes I, I misread it. I'm like, yeah, well, those people over there, those godless pagans, they needed God's judgment. And whenever you start doing that, that's a bad idea because they tried that with Jesus. He said, they said, Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans who the tower fell on them and Pilate mingled their blood? And Jesus goes, yeah, let me tell you something. Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. But the reality is earthquakes, among other things, are a form of God's judgment. But thankfully, that could never happen here, right? We know because we've studied archaeology, and, and we understand rock formations and seismic faults. So, so, you know, when, if our tectonic plates bumped into each other, they would just say, sorry, my fault. Oh, I, sorry. Couldn't happen to us. But then look how God describes himself in verse 6. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens. Hey, God, what you doing? I'm building a house. I founded the vaulted dome over the earth. And I call for the waters of the sea, and I pour them out on the face of the earth. Yahweh is his name. And you go, well, why does does he talk about rain here? Okay, so God makes it rain. Grandma told me when I was little, (coughs) hear the thunder, the angels are bowling up there. Yeah, God makes it rain. But think about that. Either he's reminding us that God sends the rain to bless us, or sometimes God gives the rain, and we go, okay, that's enough. And he goes, no, it's not. No, 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 that's, that's plenty. No, it's not like in Noah's time. So maybe it's a reminder of the God who can, who can destroy us through a flood, right? But I don't know. I wonder if that would ever catch on as a song. The Lord is his name who founds... You're like, don't quit your day job, Tom. This was a song, but it was purposeful. Amos wouldn't just say, let me bust a rap here. He's going, God's judgment is inescapable. Here's the judge. Does he sound like a little guy that you don't need to be scared of? Okay, so, so that's the second point. Third point is at this point I would be like, we're doomed. God, you said not a single one of us will escape this judgment and you're this powerful God who sends earthquakes and sits in the heavens. We're doomed. And then God often does this just in the midst of when it looks unprecedented in, in, in his fierce wrath. He, he, he shows a gem of sovereign mercy. He throws out to us a little glimmer of hope that his grace will intervene. Much like Genesis chapter 6 when it says the whole world was wicked and, and it grieved the Lord that he had made them. And every thought of man's heart was evil continually. And God said, I'm going to destroy them with a flood. But then it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So, so what we're going to see here in verses 7 through 10 is a proclamation of God's grace within this judgment. Okay, So, so, so think about how the Israelites viewed themselves We're God's people. We're not Canaanites. We're not Egyptians. We're God's people. He loves us. We're special. Now look what God says to them in verse 7. He says, are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel? Now this is no racial slur. Back then the Nubians, it was a small tribe of African people around the Nile River. They're just small. I think the emphasis here is just a little small group of people who weren't very prominent. And God goes, you're just like Nubians to me. Not to compare them to Africans, just saying, what do you think? You're, you, you think you're so special? You're no different to me than this little group of people down in Ethiopia. And then he says this. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt? And they're like, yeah, that's right. We're special. We had an exodus. You brought us up. And God goes, do you think you're the only nation I ever brought from one place and, and, and kind of recreated them in another, another place? Stop thinking you're so special to me. He says, I brought up the Philistines from Tathor, and I brought up the Aramaeans from Ker. And then you're like, okay, well, maybe we're not quite special. But let's keep reading what God says in verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. They're thinking, we're Israel, we're God's kingdom. And God goes, I'm dialed in on you. I'm locked in like, like, like the scope of a rifle over a deer that has no idea that his life is about to be snuffed out. And my judgment is about to be poured out on the nation of Israel. He says... My eyes are on the sinful kingdom and I'll destroy it from the face of the earth. But this is why I say, look at the grace of God here because you're like, is it gonna kill them all, God? And they deserve it. But he says, nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Thank you, God, for grace. Remember what grace means? Grace means undeserved, not earned. Grace means We don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. And if ever you're going to have a relationship with God, it's going to be founded on grace. We're not going to prance up to him and say, well, it's a good thing you picked me, God. We're going to say, oh, God, your grace. Well, why? Why did he choose to have grace on this little remnant? And this is what the prophets would speak, as God would speak of pouring out his fury on these sinful people. But there will always be a remnant before me. I, I will... I will extend my grace. And I hope that kind of gets your mind thinking like, yeah, you know, there's 7 billion people on this planet right now. And most of them are destined for wrath. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says, don't you forget that we were dead in our sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We ourselves, and listen to what it says, we were destined for wrath even as the rest But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive. That's grace. That's grace. And then this is an interesting phrase. When God declares his grace, he goes, Behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. When I first read that, and this is what's fun about really digging in and studying the Bible and reading the Word and thinking and reading commentaries and praying and growing in grace. When I first read that, I thought it was a good thing to be a kernel. In fact, some translations say a pebble. So God goes, I'm not going to destroy them all. Not a pebble will fall to the ground. And I'm thinking, ooh, I want to be one of those pebbles. <laughs> and then I read in the commentaries, they go, no, listen, what they did is they had like a basket, right, that had like a sieve on it. And when they shook it, the good stuff, the wheat would go through the little holes, and the pebbles would not make it through the holes. The pebbles were the junk. And what did they do with the pebbles? They threw them away. And so I think what God's saying here when he says, not a pebble will fall to the ground, he's going back to that earlier theme. Don't think that you're, you're automatically going to come through the chute and be in the place of blessing. Not a kernel will fall to the ground as a reminder that God knows the hearts of every person and that we ought never presume that, oh, I'm a good person. Because, and here's another thing to support that. Let's look at verse 10. The pebbles are the bad ones. The pebbles are the ones who are saying, oh, he wouldn't judge me. Look at verse 10. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say, this calamity will not overtake us. I don't have a court date. God's not mad at me. And God goes, really? Now, I don't get it. Folks, I don't get why in America people are not afraid of God's judgment. I understand theologically why, but it's still sad, isn't it? No fear of God. This is what we need to pray for. We can't put a fear of God in people. But Jesus can through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to pray that the Spirit of God, He's the same Holy Spirit... He he, he didn't die off and hire a new Holy Spirit. He's the same one that Jesus said when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Please be praying that the Holy Spirit will, will move in the hearts of Bucks County like mysterious wind and bring sinners under conviction. When suddenly people will start thinking, wait a minute. I'm afraid that my sins are going to take me to a place where I don't want to go. It's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's remarkable to me how many people I talk to that go, I, I think I'm fine. God's going to, I'm a good person. Do you think that? Pray to God that the, the words of the, the song at the cross would come true. By God's word, at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. And then my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. This is why so few people are flocking to Christ. We hold up John 3, 16, the end zone. We put it under our eyeballs. and We go, God so loved the world. They're not under the conviction of their sin. They love darkness rather than light. But when the Spirit of God awakens sinners, when Jonathan Jonathan Edwards wrote the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and people begin to realize they're, they're, they're one step out of an eternal flaming fire. Then all of a sudden they're awakened. Spurgeon used to say it this way. How can we heal people at Mount Calvary until they're wounded at Mount Sinai? And the only place we talk about sin anymore is on the restaurant menu. This is sinfully delicious chocolate. After all, Pastor Tom, everyone sleeps together now. Colossians 3 says... Put to death the deeds of the body like fornication. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Everyone does it, Pastor Tom. All the sinners of my people. Now, does he mean by that they're believers? Because if you're a believer, you're not going to lose your salvation. But sometimes believers die early. If you just will not live your life for Christ... He wanted to take you home and crown you, but he'll take me home by crowning me. He'll crown me and take me home. We're only here on this earth to glorify him. We're saved. We're washed in the blood, and we have this privilege, short time on earth, this dash between the two two dates on on our tombstone to live for him. But on the other hand, I wonder if he means by that all the sinners who think they're my people. Think of all the Americans who call themselves Christians. I go to church, Pastor Tom. I do my confessions I'm religious. And God's going, no, you're a sinner. And the only way you're going to get saved is by my grace. When you bow before the Lord Jesus and you receive and believe in him. And you make a big deal about him. And we glory in Christ and not in us. Well, let's move on to the last point. So we've seen an announcement of inescapable judgment. A description of the God who brings judgment. But then there's God's grace. They will not all. I'll have a remnant. So those of you who have come to Jesus, I could tell you this. This is who God's talking about. You and I who have been saved by his grace, we're the remnant. And so the last thing Amos does here is he gives a description of the bright future for all of us who have escaped God's judgment by his grace. I remember one time, one of my neighbors at a Bible study in my home. Tammy and I still laugh at this. He said, I don't want to go to heaven and sit around and play harps. That sounds boring. And his wife was like, oh, please don't embarrass me. And I'm like, no, let the guy talk. That's a good question. I think that's a fair thought. Sounds kind of boring, right? But, you know, if you just kind of chase that thought a little further, you go, well, even if that's all we did and that isn't, it sure beats the alternative, (laughs) right? But one of the things the Bible holds out for us is to think about happy days that are coming for us as Christians. I can tell you this, it's going to get better if you're a believer. The sun may not come out tomorrow, but it'll come out. The author of Proverbs understood this. He said, the path of the righteous is like a a bright light that, that burns brighter and brighter until the full day. Now, in between that full day of sunlight when we see Jesus, I might be down in some deep, dark, deadly valleys. But though I walk through that valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because surely goodness and mercy will follow me. And I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what the Lord does is he says, yeah, I know we came to the house of God to worship. And we got all our troubles weighing us down. I feel it. I don't get up every morning and go happy, happy. I feel the weight of sin and struggle and personal problems and anxiety and things like that. I feel it. But what God says is, yeah, but listen. The sufferings of this world don't compare with what's to come. And so look at how Amos ends. And this is God. This is what God holds out for his people. He suddenly, he, he, he extends. And the prophets do this sometimes. They're talking about something that's right there. And then they, and then they take a leap into the future. And he says, in that day... Because picture now, God has brought this earthquake. He's destroyed Israel. They're laying there in ashes and rubble. And the glory days of King David are over. And God says, yeah, but in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. I'm going I'm to wall up its breaches. All these broken rocks of the walls of Jerusalem. I'll wall them up. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And, and some Bible commentaries are like, yeah, this is... This is talking about when when Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the wall. And I'm going, I don't think so. I think it's talking about, keep going, keep going further down the road. Because keep reading. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Now, just briefly, I want you to note this. This is just for those of you who want to go in the deep end and study this. This, this phrase, all the nations are called by name, is quoted in Acts 15 by, by the Apostle James when they're giving Peter a beatdown for preaching to the Gentiles. What are you doing preaching to the nations? And Amos stands up and says, this is what God said would happen in Amos, all the nations who are called by my name. See, God's sending the gospel out to the nations. It's not about us. He's not like, I love America, this I know. He loves the world, and he's reaching the nations, and he's going to reach them through us and others who pray for the nations, who, who give to reach the nations. But let's look at the last part and then we'll, we'll, we'll wind it up. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. And he's describing this time of blessing. And again, I'm going, is this talking about heaven? Or is this talking about Israel being back in the land? Like, I don't think in any way he would have foresaw 1948 when, when Israel came back into the land. But the Bible, in my mind, you have a hard time reading Romans 11 and going, I don't think God's going to do anything more with Israel. Now, that's just my opinion. And you can read Romans 11 and read it. But, but I think this is a picture of future blessing for all of God's people. And here's the thing I want you to think about. We're not going to go up in heaven and float around in clouds. That's just a little waiting room. If you die now, you go to be with the Lord. But when the Lord comes back, we come back with him and our bodies are resurrected And we stand on this earth with our God in a new heaven and a new earth. Full and complete. No more sorrow. No more tears. No more pain. The former things are all passed away. And we have nothing but a bright future of blessing. And God goes out of his way to give us imagery to describe it. He says the plowman will overtake the reaper. There was so much food that the guy's still gathering for harvest. And they're plowing the next the next crop, the, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. There's going to, the grapes will be so full that the mounds are going to drip with sweet wine. There's just going to be so much abundance, and all the hills will be re- dissolved. And, and I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And often when God tells about the future, let's look at the last verse. He says they'll drink their wine, they'll have gardens, but then he says they will not again Be rooted again. That's that's a really comforting thought. Never again. Never again. I love the word forever. I love the word eternal life. And you shall never perish. I love the fact that the Bible says the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And then we'll be caught up. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. It's sure as the word of God has pronounced our future. We have no fear that God's going to 10,000 years from now go. Who said when you've been here 10,000 years, you've no less days to sing my praise? Because I'd say you said. And I want you to take comfort of that. A day of rest is coming, but it's not yet. So as we close. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to, to number one, say, hey, if you're here today and you don't know Christ and you are not born again and you have not given your life to Jesus and believed in him and received him as your savior, Hebrews 2.4 says this, how will you escape if you neglect this great salvation? Please do not leave this morning without receiving Christ. Number two, Jesus is not just the man upstairs. So as I think about the judge I want to learn to think of Jesus in his reverence. I want to encourage you to read Revelation chapter 1. When the apostle John, who spent three years with Jesus, saw him in his resurrected glory, he was so stricken by him, he says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He learned to worship Christ in all of his glory. And I encourage you to meditate on the judge who's coming. But you don't need to be afraid of him. Because as Christians, what a joy it is to know that we're the remnant, we're the elect. We're those who have been saved by grace. We're those who are covered from his wrath. Take comfort in that. Take refuge. Let that motivate you to live differently because you've been washed in his blood. You've been spared. I've been spared by his mercy. I don't know why me. I'm so grateful for that, Jesus. Thank you. But then ultimately, whatever your troubles are today, remember there's a bright future won't always be this way. I wish I could tell you, if you do this, this, and this, your wife will love you, and you're going to have a happy marriage, and your kids will all serve the Lord together. I can't tell you this, but I can tell you, if you're a Christian, you've got a bright, bright future, and it will be forever. Few of you look very happy about that. You're like, yeah, well, are you done? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Gather your elect this morning, Father. Call to yourself sinners oh if you're here today and you don't know if you're saved and you don't know if you're going to heaven please talk to one of us we want to tell you how you can be saved we want to show you how you can receive god's grace how you can believe in the lord and be spared father send us out this week overwhelmed by your grace living motivated by grace loving others and serving you until jesus comes pour out your spirit on bucks county that there might be a great conviction of sin and that people would now more than ever be open to the gospel. All over the world, we pray for the nations, for our Christian brothers who are suffering, that they will stand firm in the face and that the gospel will spread. Even as we pray for America to to be spared of your judgment, may the gospel spread greatly in these latter days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.